Stats in a Wrap. The new podcast series from Eurostat. Ik zou kunnen beginnen met. Alweer een inversion. It's growing that lithium is also. Hij has double energy from gas of the wärmepumpen. Welcome to another episode of Stats in a Wrap, the podcast series from Eurostat, the statistical office of the European Union. With this podcast series, we like to immerse ourselves in the world of statistical data by wrapping them up into small packages, intriguing stories and fascinating conversations about the everyday and not so everyday that we experience in our lives. No topic is too obscure or too obvious because we, the data scientists at the frontiers of knowledge, know that the numbers never lie. And they nearly always have something new to say. We hope to bring you interesting, delicious bites served piping hot from our rap cafe. I'm Jonathan Elliott, your host for this episode, and today we're going to be talking about Europe's renewable energy, particularly its ambition to become the world's first carbon neutral continent. Eurostat has tracked with meticulous care the emerging success story of the EU's renewables, and it's a story rooted in the extraordinarily diverse geographies and histories of the 27 member states, as well as one of the world's most exciting fields of technology. The race to save the planet from climate catastrophe can really only be observed in the numbers, and data science has never been so important. So to guide us through the vast and fascinating world of renewable energy and statistics, I'd like to introduce our two guests. Julian Prime is the head of electricity, renewables and coal statistics at the International Energy Agency. Welcome, Julian. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me here. And with him is Eurostat's Madeleine Mahofsky, who heads the Energy Statistics Unit. Welcome, Madeleine. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm glad to be invited. Thank you both. Um, first of all, let's just, um, I have to ask you a kind of informal icebreaker question. Julian, I'm going to start with you. Do you have solar panels or a wood-burning stove, perhaps, to keep you warm in the winter? Uh, well, actually, Jonathan, yes, I, I do have solar panels on, on, on my home. Uh, when, I, when I bought a new home about 10 years ago, uh, they, they were installed uh, and it's been generating electricity for me ever since. Lovely. And Madeline, what about you? Are you a, are you a green energy user as well as an expert? I'm a green energy uh, user in the sense that I often uh, commute by bicycle to work. Well, this is a podcast about statistics and regular listeners will be used to hearing about big and complex data. But the numbers that describe energy in the EU are unusually big, so big that total energy production is measured in something called petajoules, a term I'd never heard of till I looked it up. But I suspect our experts do know it, so I'm going to play perhaps a mean trick on them uh, and ask them, Julian, can you tell me what a petajoule is? It's a way of uh, combining different types of energy into a single unit. For instance, most people will use kilowatt hours for uh, measuring their electricity. Uh, but when you're wanting to compare kilowatt hours and use of coal and use of gas, use of renewables, you need to use a, a common metric. And either the petajoule or the, the ton of oil equivalent are useful metrics. Uh, Madeline, would you like to give your definition of a petajoule? So it's basically a unit of energy, and the peta means it has many, many, many zeros. I think it's 15 zeros or something like that. Well done. Absolutely correct. It is actually 15 zeros, 10 to the power of 15, which is a thousand trillion. Um, and one joule is um, equivalent to lifting one small apple 
the height of a meter. That's one joule of energy. Anyway, back to the main topic. And here's a stat to get us thinking. Eurostat tells us that in 2020, 22.1% of gross final energy consumption came from renewables, which as a proportion has risen in the last decade. So more renewables. And that's good news. Um, but there are many different kinds. Julian, can you just sort of set out for us, perhaps, um, the different types and how each has grown? Well, certainly renewable energy has increased both within the EU and worldwide. Um, there are a number of uh, technologies that have increased more than others. So, for instance, solar PV and wind have uh, increased enormously over the last few years. But there are some stable technologies as well, such as hydro for generating electricity and solid biomass. And their changes have been less um, obvious over the past few years. My place is like, my house is a little bit bigger, but we're also with two person and we don't use a lot of energy, but we have like double windows, uh, the walls are isolated because we have four seasons in the Netherlands. So like in the summer it's very hot, but you don't want to have it too hot and in the winter it's cold, So, but you have to ventilate. So it's like, yeah, and like all the houses have an energy label. Madeline, the adoption of renewable energy in the EU has been encouraging, but at the same time, the reliance on energy imports has also increased. Can you explain why? Well, I mean, the EU relies actually still a lot on fossil energies. Domestic energy production has actually gone down quite a lot, and that has to do with some policy decisions like to abandon coal or to close nuclear power plants, meaning that overall... The EU is increasingly depending on imports from other suppliers and, and mainly outside the EU. Uh, yes, the energy figures in the EU have also been affected by the COVID-19 crisis. Julian, could you explain why fossil fuel consumption came down as much as it did during the pandemic? because people working more from home and less from the office. There was a switch from service sector demand for electricity to home use of electricity, uh, mainly because of the, uh, the lockdowns that were taking place. And it was noticeable uh, worldwide that around 10% less electricity was used in most countries during 2020 and 2021. Yes, as you might expect, I guess. Who is consuming the energy? Who are the biggest consumers? Road users, aircraft, households? Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how it all breaks down. Well, it actually depends on the fuel, as, as you can imagine. Industry is, of course, a very, very important uh, consumer of energy and in particular, let's say, gas and electricity. Industrial production relies on those two fuels mainly. If you look at the transport uh, sector, Obviously, uh, oil and petroleum products are the most important driver, and so they're the transport sector, including both the professional sector and also private uh, households, consumes a lot of gasoline and diesel, of course. We heat with gas. Yeah. So that's also the, the stoves with gas. That is actually, that's bigger cost than electricity. As Whenever we change, we've had, had to change lately <laughs> a yeah. few times. 
Whenever we change, we change all the light bulbs to LED and it reduces the cost very much. And More than 50%. See, yeah, we don't light them so much. We just use lights where we need them. Renewables are sometimes thought of as something of a novelty, but of course we've been using them since the dawn of time. Uh, wood fuel, for example, is renewable energy. Julian, um, there are old renewables and new renewables, aren't there? Biomass has been used for heating purposes for many years and hydro has been used to generate electricity again many years. But more recently there's been changes and solar PV has been introduced to generate electricity and wind. And if you uh, look at renewable energy supply in the world over the past 30 years you'll see that solar PV has increased by around about a third every year, year on year, since 1990. And wind electricity has increased by around about uh, 22% year on year, every year. Other more mature technologies, such as hydro, have increased less rapidly. But the amount of renewable electricity that is coming from hydro sources still dominates and is at around about three times higher than uh, than wind. Okay, um, that, that's, that's interesting. Madeline, do, do come in. Yeah, actually, because you asked uh, since the dawn of time, and I think it's an interesting question, and I just wanted to add, I mean, think of windmills, uh, for example, that have existed uh, for, forever, just to grind the corn, for example, or solar energy for salt uh, production, where you have basically the power of the tide and you have the solar energy just to have... Um, Salt. I mean, for instance, if, if you look at Africa, around 47, 48% of total energy supply in Africa is coming from renewable sources. But that is mainly traditional energy. So using uh, wood for heating and cooking. And very little of that is what you would call the modern renewables. For example, we try to charge our phone uh, at the day because we have the um, energy from our own yeah, photovoltaic. And so we try to use the energy on the day and not in the night, for example. Yes, it's a fascinating area. Anyone who's travelled in the global south will see how energy is used and often perhaps in kind of more careful ways than sometimes we do here. Madeline, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, as you have a kind of ringside seat in the Commission, to see how the different policies have driven renewable development in Europe. Europe has a, an ambition to be the first carbon neutral continent. Can you tell us why it is that the EU has progressed as it has in renewables and where that stimulus has come from? The new agenda of the EU is called the European Green Deal. And it sets the target that you just mentioned, that Europe becomes the first climate neutral continent in 2050. And the first milestone is already in 2030. So that is just seven and a half years away. It's pretty soon for such uh, policies. And the idea is to make all the EU law fit for 55. So the idea is to have 55% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. 
And right now, and this is actually an interesting uh, moment to discuss, the targets are being renegotiated because of the so-called Repower EU uh, plan, which was triggered by the unjustified invasion of uh, Russia in Ukraine. And the idea, the target is to raise the share of renewable energy to 45% uh, in 2030. Uh, it's important here to point out that the EU imports most of its energy. Madeline, can you just talk us through that statistic? Are we actually, as the 27 member states collectively, are we still mostly dependent on external sources of energy? Is that true? Yes, indeed. As I said earlier, we are depending still to a very, very large extent on fossil fuels in the EU. And at the same time, we have reduced our domestic production. And as I said earlier, this is because we we want to get rid of uh, coal and shut down nuclear power plants. Uh, really startling when you look at renewable energy in Europe is how dramatically different the picture is from country to country. The differences in the league tables are both quite big and often hard to understand at first glance. Julian, could you just tell us, for example, why Iceland, for example, is such a star performer when it comes to renewable energy? Well, Iceland has an awful lot of geothermal energy. That's uh, a technology that's been around for many years where you are, are, are getting energy from the core of the earth. That doesn't rely on wind blowing. Uh, it doesn't uh, rely on rain falling uh, or, or anything like that. So that's, um, as, as you say, it, it's a stable performer for producing uh, energy from renewable sources. And if you look at the bottom of the league, we find Cyprus and Malta, both in southern Europe, which is abundant in sunlight. Uh, Madeline, can you explain why Cyprus and Malta are so low in the rankings when it comes to renewables? Well, I mean, you're referring now to two island economies and island economies are always very, very different from the mainstream, so to speak. Basically, both Malta and Cyprus rely to a very, very large extent on fossil fuels, and it's mainly oil and petroleum products. Just to give you the size, uh, both countries in their energy mix have 87% of oil and petroleum products. And the situation for Malta is even worse because you add to that share, you add 10% gas. So you're 97% of fossil fuels. But let's not forget in terms of renewables, they're still at the end of the scale. They have both increased quite a lot. Uh, so Cyprus is now at close to 17%, whereas Malta is at 11%. Uh, Julian, you're in Paris and France has not performed as perhaps one might expect of such a leading economy and a major power in Europe. Uh, in fact, it's one of the few countries that did not meet its target. Can you explain why? Well, in France, uh, a lot of the electricity has been generated through nuclear sources, which is another low-carbon technology. As time went on, more investment was made in supporting nuclear than other forms of electricity generation. Uh, and it is, nuclear is a, is a long-term investment as is most uh, electricity-generating uh, technologies. Uh, a country has invested in a certain technology. It isn't cost-effective to just keep chopping and changing to new ways of generation. So back at the top of the league, along with Iceland, sit Sweden and Norway. Again, hard to immediately see why they should be such big producers of renewable energy. 
Madeleine, what's their secret? Well, actually, Sweden is outstanding in many respects. So it's high share of renewable energy production, but also high share of renewables uh, use in transport, for example. I just wanted to add that. Well, Sweden, Sweden already started from a pretty good, solid level of hydro in the year 2004, simply because they're having those natural resources. And Sweden is... I would say traditionally is also environmentally aware. So they did invest a lot in the past in hydro plants, but let's not forget, they really increased their share by a very, very large margin. So the increase in the last 15 years was really impressive. Their starting point in 2004 was 38%, and they are now above 60%. And for Norway, the natural resources are similar to Sweden's, I would argue, and they rely mainly on hydro, but also have reached a stellar share of renewables uh, in uh, overall above 77%. So this is fantastic. But they already started from 58% in 2004. Certainly, Madeline, outside the EU as well, you can look at certain countries like Paraguay, where they have 100% of their total energy supply coming from renewable sources. And that is hydro uh, based on the Itapu Dam, uh, which is shared with Brazil. So, you know, there are stellar performances worldwide as, as well as within Europe. In the Netherlands, you have a lot of wind. I think like wind, like natural energy is I think the most, yeah, like we have a lot of water, we have wind, we have sun. I think that is much cheaper uh, than, but we also have a big uh, source of gas in the north. And I know that is very cheap. Julian, there are clearly some countries that are blessed with the geography to produce renewable energy, Uh, abundant sunlight, Uh, maritime coasts and the opportunity to put wind farms out at sea. So why aren't we seeing performance in renewables linked to geography in these rankings? Well, certainly, yes, the the geography is very important, but also it's the political motive of the country's government as well to decide which technologies to invest in. You know, certainly if you are looking at uh, renewables worldwide, around 60% of renewable electricity generation worldwide comes from just six countries, People's Republic of China, the US, Brazil, Canada, India and Germany. Those six countries account for uh, over 60% of renewable electricity generation. Madeleine, you wanted to come in there. Let me let me do, please. Let's not forget that hydro is already or has been for a long time a mature technologies. So the technological development for different types of renewable energy productions differs. So hydro is an old and apostrophes uh, technology and well-established technology. So it has a long tradition on the one hand. On the other hand, what you see is that in recent decades, resistance, and here I'm talking about uh, our democracies, resistance uh, against more hydro plants has uh, increased because people felt we don't have any natural rivers uh, left and let's protect our rivers. I think the biggest problem we're heading to is like all the resources are going empty, are declining. And I know like we already have a water issue. But nobody, nobody is aware of it. 
I'm just thinking about um, commercial and private companies, the private sector here. Is there a growing hunger in or an interest in the private sector to invest in large scale solar and wind as a long term commercial commitment? Obviously, it's very expensive initially. Uh, to set these up, but the potential is very, very lucrative because, well, it's it's a renewable energy source. It's free. Certainly, yes, there is an awful lot of uh, investments by private sector energy companies in renewables. And I think the latest uh, stats show that total investment, by total power sector investment, 80% of that last year was in renewables, grids and energy storage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and most of the traditional energy companies are now trying to get a cleaner, greener face on their business. This is why having a stable policy framework is so important. And so if you look at the EU setting these ambitious targets, provide some certainty for such companies to plan ahead Provided, of course, the policies are credible, but this is what we are working for. But these investments, they are all very, very long term. And that is why the EU has set this long term goal for the year 2050. Yes, absolutely. Quite. But Julian, you just touched on China back there a little bit. And as we are talking about an ambition for the EU to become a climate neutral continent, I guess global comparisons are useful. China's fascinating because it seems to be very, very progressive and investing huge amounts in solar. And yet it's also very, very dependent on fossil. Can you just sort of unpack the China story a little bit for us? China, as you say, is the world's biggest energy market. So, for instance, 30% of the world's hydroelectricity is produced in China. 33% of the world's solar PV electricity is produced in China. If you look at China as a a whole, coal still accounts for over 60% of their power generation and new coal power plants are still being built. But the sector as a whole, solar PV capacity additions have outpaced those of any other country in the world. In China, energy consumption has doubled since 2005. But if you look at the energy intensity of their gross domestic product, so the amount of energy that is needed to create one euro or one million euros of GDP, uh, that's decreased significantly over that same period. China has a very diverse industrial use. So for instance, in China, more than half the world's steel and cement is produced. And so, you know, that that is going to have a big impact on emissions. And if you look at just the steel and cement sectors in China alone, CO2 emissions from that sector are higher than the entirety of the EU's CO2 emissions. But they are still growing in the amount of renewables and still invest in renewables and developing technologies and and building batteries that can be used for electric vehicles and so on. Uh, Yes, battery technology has a huge role to play in renewables. And there's another energy storage technology uh, that's getting a lot of attention at the moment, and that's, that's hydrogen. Julian, can you explain a bit about hydrogen? 
Hydrogen is a very light, storable and energy dense element and its use as a fuel produces no direct emissions or pollutions or greenhouse gases. The main obstacle to get low carbon hydrogen is the cost of producing it and that requires large amounts of electricity to produce it from water through electrolysis or using carbon capture technologies uh, to produce it from fossil fuels. Uh, countries are, though, considering more the future of hydrogen. And, for instance, in 2019, there were just three countries in the world that had a developed strategy for the production and use of hydrogen, and that was France, Japan and Korea. But today, over 20 countries have uh, released hydrogen strategies and another 20 or so have publicly announced that they are working to develop a strategy on hydrogen. Madeline, you're more cautious about the wonders of hydrogen. Just talk us through your reservations about the excitement over this technology. Well, reservations. I mean, first of all, the EU does have an EU hydrogen uh, strategy and uh, it plans to invest quite a lot of money into producing clean hydrogen. And I think Julian already said it, you need an awful lot of electricity in order to produce hydrogen. And now we need to look at how electricity is, uh, is produced. This is the starting point. If electricity comes from clean uh, sources, then we would generate clean hydrogen. If electricity is produced, for example, from nuclear power plant, you still have nuclear as the source of electricity. And if we would need to revert to coal plants uh, at the current uh, geopolitical juncture, then again, the electricity would come from that uh, source. It's like for electric cars. Uh, I mean, you don't just plug in the car and then your transport is clean. You need to look into what is behind the electric plug. And I would say that applies to hydrogen. There are a few statistics on hydrogen worldwide and roughly uh, 90 million tonnes of hydrogen was used in 2020. But that's mainly in the refining and industrial sector and produced, sadly, from fossil fuels rather than renewable sources. But that is, you know, hopefully going to change uh, over the coming years. Another technology that, like hydrogen, has been promoted as a potential game-changer in renewables, but also attracted criticism, is biofuel. Julian, could you just unpack a little bit for us that biofuels are sometimes uh, not quite as green as people think, are they? A large number of uh, biofuels do compete when they are grown with food crops. So that's why it's important to look at uh, sustainable biofuels, which don't interfere with food. We're using the new term for that, and we call them advanced biofuels. And advanced uh, biofuels don't compete with food. And there is a second step of those advanced biofuels, and that are those that do not compete with feed uh, either. So for example, if you have corn, instead of using the corn to produce uh, biofuels, you would use the leaves. And the corn can be 
left for human food or animal meat, just to illustrate the case. So we start distinguishing those biofuels. Solar energy, yeah, panels, panels, yeah, you, that you put on the roof. But that is also a little bit tricky because the, the panels are very expensive and you get your return of investment actually after seven years. A lot of people now put solar panels on the roofs of their houses, and it's a common sight, of course. Julian, I was just wondering if that's growing, or is it more like the big solar farms we sometimes see in the countryside? Um, are they set to dominate? I mean, there is still a market for decentralised solar power generation, so people putting solar panels on their roofs. But it is more the commercial scale, the, the, the large solar farms that are now dominating the changes to, uh, to how solar energy is produced. That does surprise me. I mean, why is it that uh, we have to concentrate our solar energy production into, one, into big farms like that? If you are talking about a big energy company, it's a lot easier to use it in one area than to pay 100,000 people to have a solar panel on their roof. There are different models now emerge in uh, renewable energy production. And, and part of the picture is people doing it locally and generating it locally, which is exciting. What we're observing right now is a structural shift in how energy is produced. The energy system was uh, based on a centralized uh, production. The large companies produced energy and distributed it while households were consuming energy. But now this has changed with these smaller scale installations. Households are now also producing energy and feeding it into the grid. And it's not only households, but it's also uh, certain industrial uh, sectors like agricultural uh, sector or even the services um, industry. We have actually created a new term and we speak about prosumers. So prosumers are consumers that produce their own energy and contribute to the grid. And they play a more important role now, and that is on the rise. The amount that is being added each year in terms of renewable capacity is growing year on year. If we look worldwide in 2021, something like 295 gigawatts of renewable power capacity was added to the world's uh, electricity supply. And global capacity additions are, in 2022, expected to be around 320 gigawatts. Now, that is the equivalent that would come to meeting virtually the entire electricity demand of Germany, or matching the total of the European Union's electricity generation from natural gas. So we, we are talking large amounts of renewable capacity that are being installed. Of course, this sector is growing uh, enormously, but nevertheless, we will still need the typical and classical electricity producers. So there is nothing that would replace them. And the risk or the, the difficulty, the obstacle with uh, renewable energies is, of course, that they are available when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining. But talking about the prosumers, there is a pretty interesting um, concept of so-called virtual batteries. And that means prosumers that produce excess electricity, feed it into the grid, and they can consume it at a later stage when they 
needed at no extra cost. Typically, they would feed it into the grid in summer and then they need it uh, in winter. That is quite interesting and called virtual batteries. Virtual batteries. Uh, It's almost the stuff of science fiction. But, well, that's energy technology, I guess. It's full of innovation and astounding facts and figures, which is what we're all about here at Stats in a Wrap. But we're out of time and must wrap the wrap. It only remains for me to say thank you very much to our amazing contributors for a very wide-ranging discussion. To Julian Prime, the Head of Electricity and Renewables and Coal Statistics at the International Energy Agency. Thank you very much, Julian. Thanks, Jonathan. It was a great chat. And lovely to have you on the show, Madeline, as well from uh, Eurostat, who heads the Energy and Statistics Unit. Thank you very much, Madeline. Thank you, Julian, and thank you, Jonathan. It was a very interesting talk. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to share with friends and colleagues where Stats and a Wrap can be found on Spotify, Apple, Google, and all the usual places. And of course, join us for the next episode when we'll be dishing up more flavoursome insights from Eurostat, and this time celebrating European Statistics Day. Join us then. And for now, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.